morning, church. Have I told you that I'm a coin collector? <laughs> Do I have a little OCD maybe? So uh, yeah, a few months ago I started taking up collecting coins. <clears throat> Goal was to collect uh, one of every circulation coin that Canada puts out. There's a lot of these special coins. You've probably seen some of them in your change. And I've kind of noticed something as I've, uh, I've been looking for them and looking at them. And there seems to be a theme through many of them. This is a 2008 quarter. It's got a poppy on it. And then it says uh, underneath that poppy, remember souvenir. I don't know why it says souvenir. You know why it says souvenir? I... I I discovered that souvenir is French for remember. Did you know that? You didn't know that? Okay. I had no idea that souvenir was French for remember. I, I thought it just meant like that waste of money when you spent about that tacky thing on your trip that you throw in a drawer and never see again. Remember. And then this one came out, 2010. It's got a couple, couple little poppies on it. It says, remember souvenir. 2015, this little beauty came out. Got a nice big red poppy on there. Underneath it, it says, Remember Souvenir. And then uh, 2017, Tooney, Vimy Ridge. You ever been to Vimy Ridge? Eric and I uh, were at Vimy Ridge, 2003, the year we got married on the uh, choir tour at Prov. One of the most powerful experiences I've ever had at Vimy Ridge. It's actually the day I met Howard and Karen Moore because we sang in the church they pastored, never knowing 15 years later he'd be in our church and be on our board. It says on it, remember, souvenir. And then there's this one. This one is uh, 2018. It's got a poppy on it. It says armistice, and underneath it says remember, souvenir. And then this little beauty, this came out last year. I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's got a, it's got a V for victory on that, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the end of the uh, World War II. And underneath that, it says, remember, souvenir. And many of us are wearing these poppies today because um, this is the week that we remember, right? November 11th, um, we stop and we take some time to remember lest we forget, right? Remember those who served and many who gave their lives so that we might be here in freedom and, and live in prosperity today. And it's so easy to forget, isn't it? Lest we forget, remember. Because we're separated from, with time and space from these events. You know, I didn't see them, wasn't there, they happened in other places. And so because we're separated by time and space, it is just so easy to forget. And that's why we've got all these little things that remind us to remember. This kind of hit home for me, actually a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting Alan Natalie James' place for their 60th wedding anniversary. Al was telling me the story of his life, telling us in the room there about as a boy, uh, what was the age of seven that you saw your father last? Is that right? Seven? And, he's, and he spoke, Al spoke about uh, when he last saw his dad, and you could even like hear the emotion in his voice. 
as he spoke about uh, that time as a boy when he saw, said goodbye to his dad and his dad headed to Europe and never came back. Uh, perished on the beaches of Normandy in D-Day. And it was just a few years later that you were, you were telling me that uh, you and Natalie took a trip to try to find his grave. All these years you had no idea where he was buried and you searched and searched until you came across a cemetery where you saw a little white cross and you found your dad's name. <laughs> I don't know, when I heard that story, it kind of, it hit home for me. It just came a little bit closer and some of you in the room, maybe you have some of that experience. And I know there's people in our body even, uh, even right now that are currently service members in our military and I know Jim Johnston was here in the first service. He serves in our military and I'm not sure if he was here in first service or he's in the room right now, but Andrew Seward, a young dad in our church, many of you know who... Uh, just came back from a deployment in Kuwait a couple of months ago, and he's serving in our military. So if you see these guys, why don't you thank them for their service as well? And I would just encourage you on November 11th, just take time, go to a gathering, to a cenotaph, and remember, because we need to. It's good to remember. We're taking a break for, uh, from our, our series that we've been in, going through the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to take a break. We're going to finish that next week, because I thought this morning we really needed to remember you know, the author of the letter of Hebrews uses this word a few times. He says to Christians just like us, you need to remember a few things, Christians, so that you don't forget. Now, the book of Hebrews is, is a little mysterious. It's kind of, yeah, it's shrouded in mystery more than any other book in the New Testament because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews like we do most other books, and we don't actually know to whom it was written. We know that it was written to a group of Jewish background believers in Jesus Christ who had faced great sufferings at some point in their past. And so as we piece together these details, our best guess is that the book of Hebrews was written after the year 49 AD because likely these Christians to whom he was written were in Rome in 49 AD when Emperor Claudius was emperor of the Roman Empire and expelled all the Jews and all the Christians from the city of Rome, confiscated their homes and their possessions and put them out and ran them out of the city. And it was probably these Christians that had suffered at that time that he's writing to. And we find that these Christians, they suffered in a variety of ways. They suffered derision, we're told, right? They had suffered verbal insults. They had suffered physically, right? Some of them had been arrested and put in prison. So they had suffered physical assault and they had even suffered economic assault, right? We're told that they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property, so their homes, their possessions were actually taken away from them. He says, remember that? Remember, you know, when you hit those verbal assaults and those physical assaults and that economic assault when you lost your home and you lost your job because of your faith in Jesus Christ? And I don't know about you, when I read that, I, I, I know that that's happened in the past. I know that it happens today in various parts of the world, but that just seems so far away from me. It seems so far away from my experience, that sort of stuff. I remember as a 15-year-old, our youth group went to Pambrin, Saskatchewan, to Miller College of the Bible, their weekend youth retreat. Now, if, if you Google middle of nowhere, you'll find Pambrin, Saskatchewan, okay? If, you, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, there are people here? Do they choose to be here? And so back in the mid-90s, I was at this little Bible college, little fledgling Bible college, Miller College of the Bible, and I, this, this doesn't even have a future. This doesn't have a hope. This thing is going to shut down in a few years. To my surprise, 
Years later, I discovered uh, not only have they survived, but they're thriving Miller College of the Bible. They just opened a campus this last year in Winnipeg, which is really exciting. And they put out fine people, including Daniel and Damaris, graduated from Miller College of the Bible, Pamburn, Saskatchewan, last year. And he was actually telling me, when I told him this story, he's like, you were there that year? We still talk about that 25 years later. You were there the year that 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 happened, that they had to issue all those apologies. Yeah, I was there that year at the youth event where they played the game called persecution. And so what they did late this one night in the middle of nowhere, pitch black, they, um, they said, all right, you students, you're going to pretend to be, we want to give you a taste of what it's like to be a persecuted Christian. So this is what we're going to do. You're just going to run around and you're going to try to find places to hide, to gather, to pray, to worship. And uh, then they had designated students of the college that were the persecutors and they had to try to find us. And so we thought this kind of sounded fun. So we were running around in the darkness. I was with a little group of guys and gals. We found this little, it looked like a shack, a rundown shack. It had a door, but it opened and it was a root cellar. We went down into the basement. It was pitch black, you know, kind of smelled of must down there, damp. And we gathered in darkness and we did what we were told, you know, like we, we spent some time praying and quietly worshiping. All of a sudden, the door just flung open. These guys came pouring down the stairs, screaming, grabbing us, yelling in our face, the top of their lungs, kind of roughing us up a little bit. And needless to say, it resulted in a lot of trauma. And so, um, there were a lot of, I vividly I, I remember these, all these tears, these students that were breaking down in tears. And yeah, it didn't go so, I think that was the last year they ever played the game of persecution. Uh, they'd issue apologies to some families. The kids left traumatized. And that was like the closest taste I ever had of persecution. Now, we may not suffer like that, but there is a cost to following Jesus, even for us. In these verses, the author of Hebrews, he wants to remind us of three things. He says, remember these three things. The first is this. He says, remember that you will suffer for Jesus' sake. You will suffer for Jesus' sake. He's talking to us. You will suffer for Jesus' sake. You know, there's no such thing as a private Christian. It doesn't exist. Jesus says who, in, in Matthew chapter 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. What he's saying is there is no such thing as a private Christian, which is why right from the very beginning up until the present, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in, in, in the secrecy of your heart, the very next step is to profess your faith, your allegiance to Jesus publicly in the act of baptism. It's a way of saying there is no such thing as a private Christian. And so next Sunday, we're going to have our baptismal tank up here, and we have a few people that are going to publicly profess their faith in baptism. We're looking forward to that. And I wonder if that's something that some in the room right now need to participate in. Maybe that's not something you have done, and you need to profess your faith publicly in obedience to Jesus Christ through baptism. And it's not too late if you want to talk with me or Daniel or another staff member about being baptized next Sunday. But there's no such thing as a private Christian. If our allegiance is to Jesus, then we will suffer for His sake, the author of Hebrews says. It almost seems to be like a promise. 
Let me just rattle through a few verses here in the New Testament. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus. And then he would say in the Gospel of John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will, also, they will obey yours also. This is what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 to 3. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in Christ's service, or God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are, say it with me, destined for them. What's the them? The sufferings. Did you know that you have a destiny? Don't we love that word? destiny. We are destined to suffer. Jesus would say, not if you are persecuted, but when you are persecuted. When you are persecuted. Paul would say that, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Well, there it is, as plainly as can be. And, and Peter would even say this, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests on you. What all of those verses say, Jesus, Paul, Peter, remember that you will suffer, Christian, for Jesus' sake. So don't be surprised, Peter said. Don't be surprised. It's something that you need to expect because when we have wrong expectations of something, then we normally don't stick to it. We find ourselves disappointed, disheartened when we had wrong expectations it's so important that we know that we ought to expect as Christians, we will suffer. Like in marriage, like so many people have this idealistic picture of marriage. Oh man, if, if, when I get married, everything is just going to be great, right? Everything is going to be right when I find Mr. Right. Sorry, ladies, he's off the market. <laughs> My wife's gagging back there in the back row, actually, see that? See that in marriage, right? When you go into marriage with false expectations about what it's going to be like, it just becomes that much harder. When you find yourself surprised that marriage is actually suffering. I mean, not mine, but probably yours. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of only half tongue-in-cheek there. Marriage is a lot more than suffering but it's no less. It's no less. But if you go into it with the wrong expectations about what it'll be like, it's going to be hard to, 
to persevere. You're going to find yourself discouraged. You might even shrink back. And so this is the first thing that the author of Hebrews is saying is, remember that you will suffer for Christ's sake. Don't be surprised by it. It comes with the territory. It's a promise of God. It's actually even a sign of blessing, a sign that you belong to Him. It's just credibility to your faith. When you pay a cost for following Him, and I don't know if you feel you've paid a cost. Maybe you don't feel like you've paid any significant cost, and maybe you haven't. But whether it's been significant or whether it's small, there is a cost to following Jesus. Have you ever paid a cost? Maybe it's something that's changed a relationship and, and led to a distancing with a family member or rejection from a friend. Maybe it's led for some of us who are younger and in school, mockery in school with classmates. Maybe it's hurt job prospects, right? As you can't do what the boss would like you to do with a good conscience as a follower of Jesus and so you're passed over for something. Have you ever suffered for the sake of Christ? Remember, you will suffer for His sake. And you know, I think of the future, and I wonder what the future is going to be like. And I've got three daughters, they're fairly young right now, and I wonder, you know, when Annika and Britta and Philip are older, you know, and they have families of their own, God willing, and, and they, maybe they have jobs, what is it going to be like for them? Is there going to be a greater cost to be faithful? Could it impact their ability to get a job as a teacher or a nurse or a lawyer? I think it's going to be harder. I think there's going to be a greater cost. And I wonder myself, like, when I... When I the, the church that I pastor in 20 years, and I, and I pray it's New Life Church in Stonewall, but the church that I pastor in 20 years, I wonder what it's going to be like for them. I wonder if it's going to be harder to be loyal to Jesus. And I think it will. I think it will. I think that cost, friends, will only go up. He says, don't be surprised when you, when you face this. Remember, all who follow Jesus will suffer for His sake. This is the second thing he calls us to remember. It's to remember that Jesus offers us better. There's that verse, every time I read it, that always just kind of grabs my heart. In Hebrews 10, verse 34, when it says, You suffered along with those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Did you just hear that? Their homes were taken from them. And they accepted it joyfully. Why? Because when that happened, they were reminded that they had something, they had a possession that was far greater than that which was just taken from them. They had a possession. They had a home that was kept safe for them in heaven that could not perish, spoil, or fade. And when their home was taken from them, it reminded them of this greater thing that they had in Jesus and that caused them to be joyful, that they had better. And so you see this connection in the Scriptures over and over again, and it's so paradoxical. 
It's so counterintuitive. Suffering and joy, suffering and joy, suffering and joy. And they're always together in the same sentence, like they're a pair. Suffering will bring joy. Why? Because I think it causes us to remember what we have in Jesus Christ. You know, when, the, when other things are taken from us, it causes us to remember and maybe to shift our hope off of that thing that we might otherwise, our heart might rest its joy or its hope or its happiness in that. And it kind of forces us to shift that hope and that joy onto the one The only one who can sustain it, Jesus Christ. And so you'll have Jesus say this, going back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. There it is. Because great is your reward in heaven. When when you suffer for his name, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because you will be reminded that you have this great reward awaiting you, this great possession that nothing can take from you. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul would say this, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, he says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Don't, Don't mistake Paul. He's not saying, God, give me suffering. I want it. He asked God to take it away. Lord, would you take it away? He didn't want it. He didn't ask for it. But God gave it to him. And he said, I have learned to even delight in the weak, delight in the hardships, to delight in the persecutions. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is he saying? He's saying, when I'm in a position where all of this earthly stuff is threatened for me, it forces me to remember who I really am. What I really have that is so much better it, it, it forces me to take my, 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 my happiness, my joy, my hope, my peace off of this relationship or this possession or this status that I have in this group of people and to put it on Jesus Christ, to find that in Him. When I am weak, then I am strong. I saw a message delivered by John Piper. Some of you know John Piper, a well-known pastor in the States. He was invited to preach at uh, the largest maximum security prison in the United States. It's in Louisiana, Angola, Louisiana. It's called Louisiana State Penitentiary. If you go into that place, you you don't come out. You don't come out alive. Almost everyone that's in there is on death row. And many of those people that have, you know, done terribly evil things that got them there uh, found Jesus Christ in prison. And so, of course, they have a chapel there, and they invited John Piper to come and preach, and I remember watching this message online, and I I just found it so interesting because he said to them, guys, you have a great advantage over the rest of us. You know, all those things on the outside that you might want and desire, you used to have and that other people have, you have an advantage because those of us on the outside that live in comfort and prosperity and health and freedom and leisure, it's just so easy for us, for our, for our hearts to gravitate to those things for our joy to rest in those things. But you have an advantage because you don't have any of those things. You have 
the only thing you need. You can't put your heart on those things because you don't have them. You're forced to put your heart on Jesus, to find your hope in Jesus, the only one who can truly sustain it. You know, I don't know if you found this, but sometimes the most dangerous place to be spiritually is a place when everything is good. A place of prosperity and comfort, because doesn't that just easily lead to complacency when all is good? Health, prosperity, comfort. You know, for me, the, the, the toughest time spiritually in my 40 years of life was my years in Bible college. Talk about not being what I expected it to be. You know, in high school, I was that Christian kid trying to be publicly faithful to Jesus in a school of 1,500 kids, right? And there was a lot of darkness there. And, and, I, and I was kind of keenly aware when I got up in the morning, like I'm going into a place where I need to be alert. I need to be on guard. I'm representing Jesus Christ here. And so I would go and I would do my best and I'd come home. And I still remember there was a period of time where I'd, I'd put on our, remember when you used to have those big like radio systems or like stereo systems that were like this tall? Now, now that our phone does all that. But I would go and I would, put a, I would put a cassette tape in. And I think it was Stephen Curtis Chapman. I could be wrong. But someone who sang a song called A Few Good Men. God just needs a few good men. And I would just kind of play this song to kind of replenish my strength. Like I'm going back in. I got to be on guard. I got to be alert. And that's kind of how I went through high school. And then I went to Bible college. And then I'm like, we're all on the same team here, right? We're all on the same team. And I found myself, I let my guard down. I wasn't spiritually alert because I was just surrounded in this comfortable spiritual place. And um, the worst movies I ever watched, I watched in Bible college. The filthiest conversations I ever had, I had in Bible college. Because I think, I think this is true. Like Maybe the most dangerous place spiritually is to be in a place of prosperity and comfort. I remember, I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis or someone else, I couldn't find the quote, but years ago reading um, uh, about this, this dynamic, and the author said, um, really what we ought to pray is, dear brother, please pray for me as everything is going so well in my life right now. This is, this is the prayer he wrote to his friend. Please pray for me because nothing is going wrong in my life. The family's great. The job is great. Got more than enough to eat. Healthy. Nothing is going, everything is good. Would you pray for me? We somehow feel like we need prayer. We need support when, like, when we're facing crisis, challenge. And we certainly need it then, but we don't need it any less when everything is going right because when all seems well, that can be the most dangerous place to be spiritually because we can just get oh so complacent, right? And, our, and, and just our joy and our hope and all of that that's supposed to rest in God kind of shifts to other things. Maybe you can relate to that. You know, I wonder if that's what this author of Hebrews is talking about when he says to them, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Maybe he means like, you, hey, remember when you guys suffered? Yeah, you're still suffering. So like, get up in the morning, just keep going. Don't shrink back, persevere. I actually don't think that's what he's talking about because he's trying to remind them in the past, remember when you suffered? And remember the joy that it instigated in your life? Those trials 
Remember that? Well, now you find yourself in this good place. That suffering is past tense. All seems good. Now that everything is good in your life, be careful that you don't shrink back. Remember that Jesus offers you better. Don't put any of that in your stuff. Now you've got a house again. Don't put your joy in your house that you got now again. Remember that Jesus offers you better. Pursue Him today. I think He's giving them a warning against ease, against comfort, prosperity. There's a third thing He, he wants to remind them of. He says, remember those who suffer for Jesus today. You can throw that third point up there. Remember those who suffer for Jesus today. Just a couple chapters later, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, he says, continue to remember those in prison as, you, as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So he, there he used that word remember again. Remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. Stand side by side with those who suffer, is what he's saying. And you know, it's so easy to, to forget fellow Christians that suffer because we're separated by, by space. You know, like this is something that maybe seems so far away, something that maybe we don't see, something that maybe we don't experience. But we need to remember those who suffer for Jesus and not forget them. I mean, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, kind of a really well-known parable of the kingdom of God, where he talks about the separating of the, sheeps and the sheep and the goats. Many of you will know this parable well, but he's talking about judgment day, right? When God, when Jesus separates the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, and it says, um, on page... He says to the righteous, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now this is Jesus talking. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick? or in prison and go visit you. And then the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then the king addresses the goats and he says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. And they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger in need of clothes or sick and in prison and not help you? And he replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I've read that, I've read that many times, I just kind of assume that the least of these that he's talking about is just the people in the world that are poor. Like, like the neediest people in the world are the least of these. Is that how you've understood it? You know, you see those World Vision commercials, right? The emaciated little black kid sitting in the dirt with the flies crawling around their nostrils. And then, you know, in the background, of course, you hear Sarah McLaughlin singing, I will remember you. Will you remember me? 
you want me to stop singing this, raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and those words, that idea comes from this passage. And that's used in, in all... You've maybe seen the SPCA commercial, the little poor puppy dog. Will you remember me? What is Jesus... What is Jesus talking about? Who are the least of these? Well, he says the least of these brothers of mine. And it's interesting that in the Gospels, the word bro- when Jesus uses the word brothers, he only ever uses that of his disciples, his followers. And so look what he says. In Matthew chapter 12, we're told that Jesus was talking to uh, the, the crowd, his disciples. His mother and brothers stood outside, you know, Mary and his biological brothers wanting to speak to him. Someone told them, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to them, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And do you know what Jesus is saying? He's not diminishing like biological family relationships, not at all. He's elevating our spiritual relationships. He's saying as as followers of Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We have responsibility to one another, no less than a son has responsibility to a mother. You are responsible for one another. So whenever Jesus uses the word brothers, he's always talking about his disciples, his followers. And whenever he uses that word, the least of these, he uses it a few other times in the Gospel of Matthew. Every single time, it's used to describe his disciples. It's very clear. So in this passage, now, don't, like, does God want us to help the poor? Absolutely. The homeless people downtown Winnipeg? Absolutely. But that's not what this passage is about. The least of these here are our brothers and sisters in faith who suffer, who have need. You know, there's that saying, you, I'm, I'm, I know you've heard, right? Blood is thicker than water. Maybe you didn't know that water there actually represents baptism. That's how that came about in the Middle Ages. In other words, biological is stronger than spiritual? And Jesus says, no. No. He identifies with his people. Isn't that incredible? Like, I love this picture of Jesus. Jesus so identifies with you. He's so united to you. He cares so deeply for you that when you hurt, he hurts. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. I feel it. You know, like a father, right? You mess with my kid, you mess with me. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's identifying with his people. He says, so should we. This will be something that is marked by my people. They will remember one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it, Paul says. We are part of one family. You know what? You have more in common with an Ethiopian goat herder that doesn't know a word of English than you have with your neighbor who does not know Jesus Christ. You know that? You have more in common. You have a shared destiny. You're one family eternally. I mean, so don't let the skin color, don't let the language, don't let the distance fool you. 
We are to identify with one another. So who are the least of these brothers of mine? You know, even as I'm preaching here, you know who comes to mind? The Emmer family. Paul and Allison, they're eight kids. Many of you know them, right? Maybe you heard a couple days ago, you knew that he was battling cancer. And maybe you heard the prognosis that they shared a couple of days ago, right? Stage four terminal cancer. Three months to live. So says the doctor. Eight kids, ages two to 13. Who are the least of these? Yeah, it's them. It's them. In, in their need. How can we be there? It's people like a guy we heard about in our sister church. I can't use his name because this is online. We have a sister church in the city, multicultural church. One of their key leaders is Burmese from, from Burma, Myanmar. Traveled back to do ministry there to see his family there. But then COVID happened and he got trapped. He couldn't get out of the country. And then there was a coup. And the regime that he fled 20 years ago is now back in charge. And now he and his whole community are under oppression. Again, suffering. Their lives are in danger and he's stuck there from our sister BGC church in Winnipeg. That kind of brought it close to home. If you want to know the name of that man so you can be praying for him, you can come find me after. I'll share that name with you. Those 15, 17 Christian missionaries, right, that short-term mission trip to Haiti, got abducted a couple weeks ago. As far as I know, are still in captivity in Haiti as they demand ransom for their lives. Daniel and I were at a BGC leaders meeting this last week. Had a great time. That's where we heard about this, this brother uh, in, in the city who's trapped in Burma and, and is being persecuted right now. We also heard from another church. They just received a family that they had sponsored, a Pakistani family that were refugees in Thailand. Because if you're a poor Christian Pakistani family, how do you get out of Pakistan? It's not a Canadian passport. You can't get very far. One of the few countries you can go to is Thailand, and so a lot of these Pakistani Christians, they go to Thailand. But they have got, they've got nothing. They're destitute, and they're even persecuted there. And so our sister church, Nisa Avenue Baptist Church in the city, they've gone through the adoption or refugee, kind of an adoption process, refugee sponsorship process, and they just, in the last couple of weeks, they received this Pakistani Christian family fleeing persecution into Winnipeg. Yeah. That's what, that's what this is all about. Remember those who suffer as if you were suffering with them. You know, Daniel and I heard that and we got in the car to drive back here to Stonewall together and we both kind of looked at one another and we thought the same thing. Like, what about New Life Church? We've got money. You've got money. We've got resources. How can we help? Would you pray about that? What can we do as a church? How can we remember this need, because there's a lot of need out in the world right now. Just to give you a few stats, which is how kind of common persecution of our brothers and sisters is, and maybe you've heard that more Christians have lost their lives in the last century than the first 19 centuries of the church combined. That might surprise some of you. 
Open Door is a great uh, ministry organization to the persecuted church. These are their most recent stats, 2021. Over 340 million Christians are living in places of high levels of persecution. Right now, 340 million Christians, high levels of persecution. By their count, 4,761 Christians have been killed for their faith so far this year. That's just the ones that they've got reports of. 4,488 churches have been attacked, either damaged or destroyed. 4,277 believers this year have been arrested and imprisoned without trial or without hope of release. 1,710 have been abducted and whose whereabouts are unknown because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These are our brothers and sisters. Remember those who suffer for Jesus' sake. So what do we do? How do we do that? How do we remember? I just want to give you kind of a, a, a few suggestions. The first thing we need to do is just to educate ourselves. I mean, you can, go on, you can go home and you can go on the web and you can just Google persecuted church and you can, get a, you can learn an awful lot. You can go to Voice of the Martyrs, you can go to Open Doors Ministries, and you can learn a lot about the need of Christians in the world today. So let's educate ourselves. Let's be aware of what our brothers and sisters in other places are facing. And just to help you do that, at the Resource Center just outside here in the foyer, we've got a bunch of booklets we got from Open Doors Ministry that we just, we'd love to give them all away. Just a great resource that will educate you on, on the persecuted church, and it gives you profiles of the, of, the, of the top 50 persecuted churches in the world today. And so I would just encourage you afterwards to go grab that, take it home, read it, pray for these Christians. The second thing we can do is we can give. We can give. I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of Paul's missionary journeys where we get his letters, do you know what he was doing when he was traveling around? Yes, he was preaching the gospel and planting churches, but we find he was actually doing something else. One of the main reasons for his traveling and his writing of his letters was to take up an offering from all of these various churches to take a collection, to pool money together so that he and others could bring it back to the persecuted in Jer- church in Jerusalem and support them because they were suffering. And so that's why he traveled around to all of these churches. He was taking up a collection to bring to support persecuted Christians. You know, I wonder, like, we have been given so much, so much, so much freedom, so much prosperity. How will we leverage our freedom and prosperity, not for our own good, not for our own gain, but for the sake of those who suffer for Jesus' sake? We have all the seed that has been given to us. I mean, it it would be a real shame if we just ate all of the seed that we had been given to plant. So that's something we can certainly do, you can do, you can give to help meet the needs of those who suffer for Jesus' sake. I mean, if those Christians that this author of Hebrews writes to, if they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their possessions... I mean, we should joyfully give of them to those who suffer. And it's just a great way to live an other-centered life, to keep our heart, to keep our heart off of just the things of this world that in time will perish, will fade, cannot sustain our joy and happiness. It's a great way of just kind of keeping selfishness out of our hearts and living an other-centered life. Let's think about that as Christmas approaches. Parents, and we have all those gifts to buy our kids that they're going to play with once, if that, and then go in a box, and then go in the storage room. If I could get back all the money I spent on gifts that didn't get used, 
toys, I'd be a wealthy man. As we enter this season of consuming, what would it look like to give? To remember those who suffer for Jesus' sake. We just have so much opportunity as the church in the West, New Life Church in Stonewall, to do that. And lastly, something we can all do is we can all pray. We can all pray. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You see, Paul actually believed that when you pray, that actually makes a difference. You know the Bible teaches that? Now, I don't know. I can't draw that straight line between me petitioning God for people or for something and then an outcome. I don't. When I give that to God, I don't know how He factors that all into the equation. I don't know. But I know that it makes a difference. And so we're called to pray. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Not just the people right around you, in the room. All the Lord's people around the world, including those who suffer. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make them fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, when he writes this right now, Paul is actually in prison. He's being persecuted. He's shackled and he's writing this letter and he's asking for prayer for all of the Lord's people. So he's saying, pray, pray for the persecuted church. Pray that God would deliver them from evil. That God would give them the ability to be faithful in the face of suffering to not shrink back, but he asked for more than that. He says, also pray that the message goes out. Pray that the gospel of Jesus spreads. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, would you pray for an open door out of this prison so I can leave? He says, can you pray for an open door for the message of the gospel? That more and more people may know the joy in the life that is found in Jesus Christ, even those who are the persecutors. After all, isn't that what Paul was? Was he not a hunter of Christians before he became a hunted Christian himself? He knew. He knew the mercy of God. In the face of his sin and evil, so we need to pray for deliverance and for the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters who suffer, but then also for the advance of the message through their faithfulness that even their persecutors might come to know the love of God. Just one little resource here that I think could be useful to our families in the room, just to help our kids pray for these Christians around the world and to kind of have this, you know, this kind of shape this other-centered heart. There's this prayer passport that's been put out by Open Doors. You can find it at the, well, or at the resource center there. And it just goes through the, the there's a map here you can put um, you don't have to be a kid to use this, I guess. There's a map there of, of the 50 most persecuted countries. And then there's a little guide each day how to pray for one of those countries, the, the church in that place. And you can color the flag if you like the color. And it's just a great resource to use for our kids to help them uh, remember those who are suffering for Jesus' sake. I encourage you to grab one out at the resource center. And while you're there, grab one of these. This is what, I, this is what I've started using as I've gotten this. This is, a, this is a bracelet that reminds me to pray for the persecuted church. It reminds me of them. Because they're far away and I don't see them. And I forget. I don't want to forget. How will I remember? 
And so this is a little bracelet. You can pick one up at the resource center for two bucks. It looks like barbed wire, but it doesn't feel like barbed wire. It's very comfortable. And it says, one with them. Has the website where I can get more information. And whenever I glance at that as I'm going through my day, I go, oh, yeah. Remember, Rusty, to pray for those who suffer for Jesus' sake. So this could be a great souvenir a way to remember. You can pick that up at the Welcome Center. I think we're giving them for just $2, and that goes to the organization that supports the persecuted church. So if you want to throw in more than 2 bucks, you can do that as well. Remember those who are in prison as, you, as if you yourself were being mistreated. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And as we bring this to a, a, a close, okay, we've talked about praying. I want you to go, and in your own prayer life, I want you to pray and consider what else you can do to remember. But let's just kind of begin that right, near, right now before we close our, our service here in a moment. I want you to dim the lights. Um, just uh, as a way of acknowledging that even right now, many of our brothers and sisters in the world are gathering in secret, are gathering in darkness, as we did at Miller College of the Bible about 25 years ago. And so this is just a kind of a way of maybe feeling like we're together, we're in solidarity with them. I want to invite you into a time of prayer. So you can throw that uh, prayer guide up on the screen there, Rob. And this is what I'm going to do. I want, I want this group to pray for the Church of North Korea, number one most persecuted church. Okay, You middle section, I want you to pray for the church in Afghanistan. Second most persecuted church. Okay, you here, this side. I want you to pray for the church in Somalia. Third most persecuted church. Okay, you up in the balcony. I want you to pray for the church in Libya. That's the fourth most persecuted church. And those of you in the overflow room or watching this at home, online, I want you to pray for the church in Pakistan, which is the fifth most persecuted church. So let's go into a time of prayer. And I'm going to give you some guidance here. Why don't we just take a moment, New Life Church, and um, let's pray, kind of pray for, for your, the church you've been assigned there. Pray that God would deliver them from evil and help them to stand firm in their faith in the face of suffering. So just take a moment to pray for them. Take another moment and just pray that the gospel message would spread through their faithfulness to those around them in their country and particularly to their persecutors.
you take another moment and just ask God to speak to you, to kind of show you how it is that you can um, stand shoulder to shoulder with those Christians who suffer? How can you support them? Just ask God that question. What do you have you do? What do you have to give? Take another moment and just pray for yourself. Offer yourself to God and say, God, would, I, I, God, I want to be faithful. Would you just, would you give me the courage to, to not shrink back from any suffering, from any persecution, from any cost to follow you? Or would, would you just help me to pursue you and to persevere in faithfulness? Maybe, maybe you're going through something right now that's hard in, in school, in family, in work, in some other way. You're counting some costs. Just ask for God's power to be faithful. Father God, you are worthy of our whole lives. Lord, you are worthy of all that we have to give to you. And God, in you, we find so much more than anything the world offers. God, I just, I, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for myself, God. It's just so easy for our hearts to drift to um, our possessions or worldly things. Uh, for our happiness, for our joy, for our hope, for our peace. But God, you are better and you offer us so much more through your son Jesus. And you have, this, um, you have this great home for us. You have this great life that we will enjoy forever and ever through your son that nothing can separate us from. God, I just pray that you would just enable us to find our hope, our peace, and our joy in that, in you ultimately, God. Would you enable us then to, to, to just to come alongside our brothers and sisters, whether they be people beside us here in this room that we know, whether they be people um, on the other side of the world that we do not know, God, would you just show us how we can remember those who suffer for your sake, God? Um, we want to be... Um, We want to be good brothers and sisters, or we want to be faithful to one another. God, use us to bless others and help us just to be faithful in our own life. God, as we may bear the cost of bearing your name, Jesus, whether it's at work or at school or in our home or with our friends or just 
somewhere out in the world, would you, God, just enable us to be faithful to follow after you with our whole hearts and bring you the glory that is due your name. All this we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord and Savior. And together we say, Amen.